And you can go ahead and be seated. Our message this morning, if you noticed it, is more lessons in the school of Christ. We began looking at that last week, but class is once again in session for the disciples of Jesus Christ, both in our passage this morning and now. Last Sunday, well really over the past few Sundays, we've been as I mentioned last week, sort of auditing this class that Jesus has been holding with his 12 disciples. First, on the heels of the the event that took place at Mount Hermon where Jesus was transfigured in the presence of Peter and James and John. And then after they came back down the mountain, remember they were confronted with a situation where the other disciples... Uh, who had stayed behind, had been approached by a man with a, a son who was possessed by an unclean spirit, and they, he had asked the disciples in Jesus' absent, absence to cast out the demon, but they were unable to do so. And that evening, uh, the disciples then asked Jesus about why they couldn't themselves cast out this demon, something they had done before, something that they had done with Jesus' specific blessing, God's specific empowering, and Jesus began to teach them, and he taught them a lesson on the necessity of prayer, a lesson that apparently they had forgotten about or neglected because he had taught it to them before. And then from that point, as the group of Jesus and his disciples journey from up in Caesarea Philippi down uh, into Galilee to the town of Capernaum, Mark tells us that Jesus was specifically focused, verse 31 tells us, on teaching his disciples. First, repeating and expanding on his teaching concerning his own suffering and death and resurrection that were all to be accomplished in a relatively short time. Then we saw a lesson on humility as Jesus had to deal with the the misguided discussion that the disciples had had among themselves regarding who was the greatest among them. And so Jesus had to teach them, again, a lesson on humility, a lesson, by the way, that we must learn as well, that we need to learn, that we are to count others as more important than ourselves, that we are to look to the needs of others and to see their needs met, even at the expense of our own. And that's true, as Jesus taught them, uh, regardless of the status or the perceived worthiness of any individual. That's where we have been in the last couple of weeks. And now, as I mentioned last week, we began looking at at this lesson or these lessons in the school of Christ. And now, after after a recess of the last week, uh, it's time for us once again to Settle down, settle into our seats, and um, let me have you take out your books, as our teachers used to say. Uh, By that I mean take out your book, the Bible, God's book to us. And let's turn to our lesson for today from the mouth of God as he gives us his word. Mark chapter 9 is where we will be this morning. Uh, Verses 38 through 42 we're going to read, and that will be the text that we'll look at this morning. Verses 38 through 42 of Mark chapter 9. And now as we get ready to read God's word, I'll ask you to stand again. 
Beginning in verse 38, here is God's word for us today. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you once again for for this service thus far. We thank you for those that are gathered here. We thank you for the songs that we have been able to sing, the prayers that uh, that we have lifted up to you. And now as we come to a consideration of your word, we pray, Father, for your special blessing on us. We pray, Lord, that you would use the vessel that stands before us this morning to to preach your word. Pray that you would speak through him, that you would be um, glorified, that you would be amplified, Lord, and that he would recede uh, into the background. But we pray that you would teach us, that your spirit would teach us, O God, uh, as we look at your word this morning, Father, and may we learn the lessons that you have for us, Father, as we seek to be obedient disciples ourselves of your word. We pray this all in the name of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So this is another, going to be another hard lesson for us to learn. And maybe an especially hard lesson for us to learn as Reformed Christians, as confessional uh, Reformed Christians. Because in this passage, in this lesson that we are going to to share uh, hearing about this morning, we are going to perhaps have to endure getting some of the sharp edges uh, sanded down a little. And we'll have to learn to perhaps, well, do that most difficult of things, uh, repent. Uh, Even as we uh, repeat an earlier lesson, or as Christ repeats an earlier lesson to his disciples, uh, to us this morning, that we need to humble ourselves. We're going to have to do that this morning as we consider this. The lesson begins with John speaking um, in verse 38. Uh, It's interesting here because this is something, and and what he says here really seems like something that we would more expect Peter to come up with, Uh, not John, not John who was, you know, the the beloved disciple and, and, you know, is recorded as as leaning on the bosom of Christ and very close to Christ. This this doesn't really sound like him, but as, as Jesus has just finished talking about receiving people there in verse 37 with his, with his illustration that we are to receive all people, um, yeah, as Jesus says there, in, in his name we are to receive them, John pipes up. And it says in, in verse 38 that John said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, 
We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So here's the situation, very simply. John, at least, notice he says, we saw. So someone else was in, in with John as they made this encounter. Maybe it was all of the disciples. Maybe it was John and James and, and Peter. Who knows? We don't know. But it was at least more than John. Uh, and he says that we saw someone casting out demons. Now, we're not given really much more detail than that. Um, We're not giving details here or in the parallel passage to this event over in the Gospel of Luke um, as to who or where or when that John and the others saw this person. This person, who was this person? Well, he would best be described as a Jewish exorcist. An exorcist, someone who casts out unclean spirits. These Jewish exorcists were a common sight in this area at this time. Most of them were not legitimate. They would come and they would use all sorts of different names and invoke different names to try to cast out demons and and were not successful at it. In fact, remember the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts in chapter 19. Remember they... They heard or saw that Paul was able to to do this, and so they thought, ah, Jesus is the name that we need to be using. And so they invoked the name of Christ, not knowing really who he is or not doing so in such a way that would honor him, but they used the name of Christ to try to cast out demons. And we know that, well, that that literally cost them the shirts off their backs, and then some, as you remember that they ran naked and wounded from the house when the spirits said, Jesus we know, Paul we're familiar with, but we don't have any idea who you are, and you have no authority. And so they sort of took it out on these seven sons of Sceva. Uh, so there were a lot of false uh, Jewish exorcists around. But this man, the text tells us, seems to be the real deal. He was not a fake He was not a fraud. He was not a Kenneth Copeland running around doing this. He was the real thing. John bears witness that this man was casting out demons. And he was doing so genuinely in the name of Jesus. We saw someone casting out demons in your name. So that's who he is. That's about all we know about him. We're also not given a lot about the, the motivation of the disciples for the reaction that we read of them, that, that we tried to stop him. Uh, is, it, is it out of a true concern for, for the purity of the work uh, of the kingdom? Maybe it was jealousy. If we sort of think back the context here, uh, it appears that this person was successfully casting unclean spirits out of people. And if you remember, and if you read back just a a few verses back, that we have just reviewed the situation of the disciples being unable to do the same thing. It's hard to say for sure. Uh, John, who is volunteering this account, as I mentioned, is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he's also called, along with his brother James, they were called the sons of thunder, because of their personality. Remember, they offered 
Jesus, um, that, that if Jesus wanted, that they would call down fire upon some Samaritans who had not received, uh, received them. So we don't really know, except for the fact that John himself gives us the reason why they did this. In verse 38 again, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. The basis of John's objection is not the man's motive, it's not the man's success, it's not his propriety in doing this, but this fellow, John says, was doing this, but he isn't part of our group. And so we stopped him. He is not one of us. He's not one of the twelve. And so, Lord, we took care of it. Or at least we tried to, it says. I think it's John, the son of thunder, speaking here. And apparently there is still a need for John, at least, and certainly the others who were with him, to revisit the Lord's teaching on humility. And I think, for one thing, that's especially seen in that the reason that they tried to stop this man, Mark says, is because he is not following, John said, us. Oh, really, John? He's not following you and the other disciples? Who is the one who is to be followed here? John, and whoever else was with him, was overstepping things a bit to claim that this exorcist or anyone should be following us. Following Jesus, yes. In fact, the twelve were followers of Jesus. They were disciples. They were followers. But John says that he was not following us but was out there on his own doing this work, casting out demons. But he was doing it, he says, in your name. He was doing it in in association with you, bringing your name to bear. He was apparently a believer doing this. God was blessing his work. Jesus, remember, was having a, a large impact on people as we've been looking at and going through his ministry a large impact as he has been ministering. Many have heard his teaching. Many have believed him. And how many were already out ministering in his name besides the the 12, we don't know. The Gospels are focused on Jesus and his life and death, and, and they don't focus on others, but there were certainly those who had believed in Christ, and there are those who are out there, many of them. Remember, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentioned that between uh, the, the, the resurrection, or after the resurrection, and in between his appearing to the disciples and his appearance to Paul, that he says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So he appeared to 500, so there's at least 500. We know there must have been many, many more than that. But to John, only one thing mattered, and that was that this man laboring apparently for the glory of Christ, being used by God to manifest the the power of God in casting out unclean spirits. Well, he wasn't part of our group. And so he reports to Jesus, we tried to stop him. And what was Jesus' response to that? Ah, way to go, John. Thank you. Thank you for handling that for me. I'm sorry, for us. No, look at verse 39. 
But Jesus said, do not stop him. Don't do that, John. You shouldn't have done that. And then Jesus gives, and this will take up the rest of of the passage here, really, uh, or most of it that we're going to look at today. Jesus gives three reasons for saying, don't stop him. Three reasons. The first one is right there. He says, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Now, again, we know that there were plenty of people especially among the Jewish religious uh, class, who were out there and were speaking evil of Jesus. In fact, you know that they had accused Jesus in his own ministry of casting out unclean spirits to be doing so by the power of the very prince of darkness himself. But this man... And the the situation about which Jesus says, do not stop him, is that of doing a mighty work, as he says, in my name. That is, in association with Christ, in a way that draws attention and brings glory to Jesus. Jesus speaks of one who really, properly, in a God-glorifying way, was doing mighty acts. And he says that such a one should not be rejected. Specifically, because such a one, he says, will not then easily, will not then soon turn around and say something that dishonors Christ. So he says, leave him alone. Such a one who who works this way as this man was doing, Jesus says, will not quickly then demean the same name that he is calling upon to cast out this demon. That's the first reason that he gives. He says, the one who does a mighty work in my name will not be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. So leave him alone. Then the second reason, he says, do not stop him, for the one who is not against us is for us. Now, we read that, it sounds a little backwards, doesn't it? Uh, It's worded differently than we would expect. We expect him to say, and Jesus does say elsewhere in the scriptures, that the one who is not for me is against me. But here, it has a a different feel, doesn't it? It's It's a more positive kind of thing. Here he says that whoever is not against me is for me. And for that reason, you should stop trying to stop this man this particular instance. So here Jesus' words are more generous, aren't they? Spoken more positively. They are uh, more inclusive. Now both statements, he who is not against us is for us, and the other statement, he who is not for us is against us, they basically say the same thing, don't they? Both point out that in regard to one's position in regard to Christ, one is either for or against. And that, of course, is consistent with the teaching of Scripture. You, me, we were haters of God until, by God's doing, we became a lover of God. We were against him until, by God's doing, we were now for him. You either love Jesus and therefore serve Jesus and worship Jesus or you hate Jesus 
The Bible allows for no tertium quid, no third options. There's no box marked undecided. And Jesus is saying here, if anyone is working for the cause of Christ, Jesus says to John and to the others that he is to be welcomed, not dismissed, not shut down. And we can notice here also that Jesus does, he does appropriately what John earlier did inappropriately. Jesus graciously includes the disciples with himself. He says the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus can do that. John doesn't have the right to to include them all like that. Jesus is saying, you know, there are precious few who are on our side here now. Don't come against the ones who are. Earlier he had said that a house divided against itself will not stand. He's saying don't be divided against ourselves. Then he gives a third reason. There in verse 41. He says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now in the Middle East in that area, to give a cup of cold water to someone in the heat of the day um, was considered an act of hospitality in general. And so it was, for the Jews, expected to be done. But what wasn't expected, among, especially among the, the small number of Christians, was for them to receive such hospitality. And so Jesus says that anyone who demonstrates this not just, not just neighborly, but brotherly affection to someone specifically, he says, because you belong to Christ, that is a good thing. In fact, such a person, Jesus says, will be blessed. And he will by no means, he says, lose his reward. And that reaches back to, to verse 40 and shows just how broadly Jesus is really thinking here when he speaks of participation in the mission of Christ. How will you recognize someone who is for us and therefore not against us? Well, perhaps when they offer you a cold cup of water in the name of Christ because you are a Christian. Even those who offer you a cup of cold water are not to be rejected. Now, this isn't a theological, hair-splitting discussion here. This is a general statement of, of dealing with people. And he's saying, this man is working on our side for the kingdom of God. And so don't stop him from what he's doing. And the statement does also bring to mind, doesn't it, Jesus' comments in Matthew 25. Where Jesus says that when the Son of Man comes into his kingdom on the last day, he'll recognize those who welcomed, clothed, visited others, and who gave a cup of water to God's people because they were God's people. He said, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And that's what he says here. But then he gives the other side of the coin, as it were, in verse 42. And you'll, you'll see that in your Bibles, if you're using an, an ESV and, and other translations as well, that they will split the paragraph or put a new heading uh, in between verses 41 and 42. 
But verse 42 really continues on the thought of verse 41. He had just said, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Then he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... So there's the other side of it, right? He, it would be better, he says, for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Well, a couple of notes on this verse here. The first one is that phrase, one of these little ones who believe in me. He's not talking there about children, not specifically, exclusively about children, but he's speaking of Christians. He's speaking of disciples, of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in the context here, those sort of -of run-of-the-mill Christians. As before, he had talked about those who are of of low esteem, even the lowest esteem, low in position, which Jesus then illustrated by picking up a physical child as he did back in verse 37 and said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not him, but him, or not just me, but him who sent me. The second thing is that this word translated causes at the beginning of the verse and then to sin, causes to sin. That's one word in in the Greek. And it's not one of the usual words for sin, but it's a word that can also mean to cause someone to stumble to cause them to to be tripped up in their walk. It can even mean to offend them, to give offense to them. And here, the little ones who believe in me includes specifically this man that John has talked about. Because the Lord loves all of his disciples, all of his people, because of that, it is not within or, or he, I'm sorry, he loves all of those uh, that are even not within the group of the twelve. And therefore it is not in the best interest of the twelve or anyone to do something which could cause such a one to stumble. To be broken down in their faith or to sin. Which is, at least potentially, what John and the others were doing by, shall we say, pulling rank on this Jewish exorcist and seeking really to put the kibosh on his ministry merely because he was not from the right chapter of the disciples' club. Jesus says it is not in their best interest to, to cause one of these little ones, to cause a Christian to sin. And just how much then is it not in their best interest? How much does our Lord frown on this sort of behavior? Well, Jesus gives a very powerful illustration to answer that question there in verse 42. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You know what millstones are. You've got two stones together, one stationary, one moves, and the the grain is then poured in between them, and the top stone is turned around, and it crushes uh, the, the grain. Well, there were little ones 
that people could use and operate themselves. But then there's, there were the big ones, which is the ones that you usually think of, that were turned by some sort of beast of burden, a donkey. And that's what's in view here. In fact, the millstone that Jesus mentions here literally is the millstone of a donkey. The millstone that a donkey would have to turn, a huge, heavy thing. So it's not a, a reference to a small millstone, but to a large one. And the top millstone, of course, would have a, a hole in it. And so it is that in Jesus' uh, imagery here, that it's suggested that this millstone would be hung around the neck of such a person and him then thrown into the sea. A picture of a sure and swift and not particularly pleasant death. In fact, it was a particularly dreadful picture to Jews who, as a rule, uh, one commentator tells us that they feared the sea and regarding drown, regarded drowning as a particularly horrible way to die. And don't forget here, as you read this, that Jesus is not suggesting that the one who would cause the destruction of the faith of one who believes in him, that he would have that done to him. That's not what Jesus is saying, is it? No, Jesus says it would be better for him if that was done to him than what should actually be done for him. The Lord who loves his people is very protective of them. And to mess with these little ones who believe in me, Jesus is saying, to trouble them, to entice them, to stumble, even to sin, is and will be taken very seriously by the Lord Jesus who gave himself to redeem all of his people. So that's the story. That's what took place. What's the lesson? What is the lesson that we should learn? What is the lesson that Jesus is teaching here? Well, obviously, it, it comes as a result of John bringing up uh, the issue of, and, and specifically, his, their response to this exorcist who, the text says, in the name of Christ, uh, for the glory of Christ is doing the same kind of work that the disciples had been doing, for the kingdom, uh, in, in, in pillaging the strong man's house. Remember Jesus had talked about that earlier. And tearing Satan's kingdom down, casting out of those who have been possessed by these unclean spirits. And the lesson that Jesus has for John and the others who have tried to stop that is don't do that. Leave them alone for the reasons that we've seen. So let's think in these last few minutes about what that says to us today, what it says to the church today. This is a lesson to avoid the sin of being overly narrow and prideful and the sin of, of, of an overly prideful exclusivism. Now, we have to be careful. So don't sort of tune in and out in this, or you may come away with the wrong idea. Listen, John here, and, and these, whoever the other ones were, is taking authority to himself that he didn't possess. 
Right, these 12 right now, the 12 disciples, as they're, we've seen how they are learning or not learning the things that Jesus is teaching them. And so the 12 are, are not, not yet, the gatekeepers of who is a friend and who is a foe to the gospel and the kingdom. After the resurrection, after Jesus is ascended, after the Spirit comes, they are very much the gatekeepers of that. The apostolic teaching is that. But at this point, no. As we've seen, they still do not understand a lot of things. And we often do not either. And here is where we can learn a thing or two from John and from Jesus teaching John. As difficult as it sometimes is for us, we need to be gracious in the way that we evaluate and make determinations of others doing ministry. Let's, in the context of the church, of other churches. And again, I think this is especially important and perhaps difficult for us in Reformed churches who place a high value on doctrine, on right doctrine, and rightly so, Doctrine is important. Doctrine is critical. We must never jettison that or lessen that. But as we look at other ministries, just as John and them were looking at the ministry of this man, we need to be first discerning as to when we see another a congregation, another church, another teaching, we need to separate those essential matters from non-essential matters. Before we make a decision on whether we can have fellowship with a particular group or not, we need to separate out essential from non-essential matters. We need to be discerning, first of all, and then we also need to be gracious, as Jesus was, in our evaluation of even other churches. You know, we spend a lot of time discussing doctrines, and very often we will mention other churches that don't do this or don't believe that. But there are two extremes that I think we need to avoid as we seek to apply what Jesus has said to John in regard to this. The first extreme that we need to avoid is the error that there is, that no issue is essential. That we will not divide over anything. There there are churches who who are like that. That we will not call out anyone or anything no matter what it is. There are many churches who are of that mind. Every so often, I will get a phone call uh, receiving an invitation to join a a pastor's group here in Reading whose emphasis emphasis is on uh, ecumenism or ecumenicalism, uh, sort of universalism, everyone coming together. And the problem is that they are wanting everyone to to accept practically anything, to put aside the grossest of errors in order to project a superficial picture of unity of the churches. And that we cannot do. There are errors of such nature that we cannot just shake hands with those who make them or who hold them and pretend that we're brothers in the Lord. We must... And we will stand firm in the face of rejection of foundational doctrines, creedal doctrines. 
So that's the first error that we want to avoid is that no issue is essential. That everything's up for grabs. Everything's up for negotiation. And if that's the first error, the second is the view, though, that everything is essential. We need to avoid that as well. That only those who agree with us on everything totally can be embraced by us as a brother and sister in the Lord. That only those who are, as John said, following us or who believe exactly as we do, only they can be considered brothers and sisters in the Lord. So let us learn here from this that that good, kingdom good, gospel good, can come from others that we don't entirely agree with. And again, discernment is the key. What is essential? What may we disagree on? Because there are some uncompromisable doctrines. The gospel, for one. Galatians 1, 8 and 9 Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that's different from the one that we preach to you, let him be anathema. That is Bible truth. And those who ignore the gospel, those, or worse, those who pervert the gospel, are worthy of what Paul says they're worthy of, of being anathema of eternal condemnation because they would keep people from hearing the gospel, the true gospel, the promise of forgiveness of sin and righteousness that comes in Christ and would therefore keep them from the only thing that can lead them to a right standing with God. And so for people to ignore the gospel, to downplay the gospel or to pervert the gospel is a serious issue. But there are also Many churches who preach the gospel of Christ and adore Christ and worship Christ and seek to serve Christ but who do not believe everything or who do not do everything exactly the same as we do. But but the gospel is there in their sermons and in the songs they sing even if they sing them to a band. And so how can we be as arrogant as to say, as John was, as to say, Lord, we saw such and such having services and exposing their people to the means of grace, even if they don't call them that. But we spoke ill of them because, well, because they're not us. There are, there are many so-called churches that we can and should pray would close their doors because what they believe and teach and because their worship is devoid of any biblical understanding of Christ and his spirit. But, beloved, by God's grace, there are lots of other churches, even here in Reading and Anderson, that are preaching Christ. Now, we might be the the, the most faithful church to the teaching of Scripture. And let's face it, none of us would be here if we didn't think that was the case. But we are not the only true church in town. And as Paul told the Philippians, in that I rejoice. Because in 
those places Christ is preached. So, beloved, let us not, let us not get so, as John was doing here, let us not get so caught up in ourselves that we make the mistake of thinking, as we sometimes joke about, that OPC stands for the only pure church. Or that RRF stands for really, really faithful to the point of being the only ones who are. OPC does not stand for only pure church. It does not, and we are not. We might... By God's grace, I pray that we are, to be a pure, a more or less pure church, a faithful church, but our own confession says that the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. Now, I'm not aware of any in the OPC. I'm not aware of any in our congregation. And we don't need, you don't need to doubt anything that, is, that we believe that we teach here but we must recognize that we are fallen people with fallen minds as much as everywhere else and everyone else. But we need to not, because someone is not us, to on that basis alone, which is what John was doing, try to stop it. You know, I meet... I mentioned I get phone calls from this one pastor's group that wants me to join them very often, and I don't because of what I talked about. But I do meet with a, a group of men, pastors in other churches in our area, whom I count as brothers in the Lord. I disagree with them on some things, some things that I count as pretty important, but none that are essential to the gospel, or I wouldn't be meeting with them unless it was to teach them those things. There are, there are Baptists in the group. In fact, they're almost all Baptists, come to think of it. And we are a church that believes that God's Word teaches us that the children of believers should be baptized. But does that mean that the gospel can't be heard and isn't heard in churches that do not? Not in the slightest. There are also those in the group who are dispensationalists. That's an even more serious error. But the pastors that I know in those churches believe and preach that one is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so how would it be if I were to go to Jesus and say, Lord, we saw someone preaching the gospel as it is presented in the scripture, and proclaiming Christ and salvation through faith in his name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us, as John was doing. Because he, he misunderstands how to interpret the Old Testament and how it relates to the New Testament, and, and they disagree about uh, the, the way things are going to go at the end times. But they preach the gospel. How would that come across to our Lord? Again, there are things that are essential and there are things that are not. Not that there's not a right view and a wrong view on all of those things. And not that I would love to see my brothers uh, in this group, love to see them understand those things as we understand those things, as the OPC understands those things, as Reformed theology understands those things. But the church, Paul said, is characterized by a certain 
unity. And Paul says that we should walk in that unity and seek to preserve that unity in the spirit, a unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Because, Paul said, the the church, the true church, despite the differences which we may have, many of which are the result of human weakness, the noetic effects of sin on our minds, the true church, Paul says, has one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's an old saying that's often attributed to St. Augustine, but actually comes from a relatively unknown 17th century German Lutheran theologian that says this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Now, certainly we would have to unpack each of those terms before I'd want to sign off on that statement and say, yes, that's, that's good. But it is good. Properly understood, that phrase gets to the heart of what Jesus is saying to John and the other disciples. And so let's pray for that unity in the church. Unity grounded in truth, the truth of God's word, with a sincere desire to see what the Bible actually teaches to be understood and loved and received and preached. But let us also rejoice where Christ is preached, truly preached, where the gospel is truly proclaimed, even if it doesn't say OPC out front. In a place that it's preached, in a way that results in Christ being exalted which he deserves. And let us rejoice that in a a world, in a city, where there are so many who have gone off and rejected essential doctrines or just don't believe them, that there are other churches that faithfully preach the gospel. Let us rejoice in that. Let us count them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And let us always seek to know God's word as well as we can, to understand God's word as well as we can, and to live it out as well as we can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, first, for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given to us your spirit by which we can understand this. We thank you, Lord, for the admonition to to be diligent to show ourselves approved to understand your word. We thank you, Father, for the clarity of the gospel. We thank you, Father, for your grace to our congregation, to our denomination, to to preach that gospel, to teach that word. And we pray, Father, that you would bless us and that you would also raise up other churches We pray for your blessing upon those churches that preach the gospel, who minister to different people, perhaps in a different way, perhaps with different understandings of some things, Lord, that even we have. But above it all, we rejoice where Christ is preached. We rejoice in any place where the name of Jesus is exalted. And we pray that that would be more and more places. We pray that you would continue to
um, through your word, through the preaching of the true gospel, that you would expand your kingdom in this city and in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.